This is the time of the year when we look forward to the new year, isn't it? New Year's is upon us, and around New Year's, we all think about newness. We usually take an opportunity to think about what in my life do I need to change? We look in our past, we look perhaps over the last year, and we think, man, I I failed in these ways, or I really could probably step up my game here. And we make something that's called a New Year's resolution. Raise your hand if you've ever made a New Year's resolution. I have. And most of us have made a New Year's resolution at some point in our lives. Some of us, you know, I know people who um, would prefer to just, I resolve things throughout the year whenever I determine that I need to resolve them. And whichever way you like to do it, that's fine. There's nothing in the scriptures that talk about New Year's resolutions. Uh, But today we're going to talk about resolutions. People have been making resolutions during the new year for millennia. It's actually a pretty long tradition, even goes back further than the tradition of Christmas. Babylonians made promises to their gods at the start of each year that they would return borrowed objects and pay off their debts. That was a New Year's resolution that was common to the Babylonians. The Romans began each year by making promises to the god Janus, for whom the month of January is named. In the medieval era, the knights took the, the, what they called the peacock vow at the end of the Christmas season each year to reaffirm their commitment to chivalry. At watch night services, many Christians prepare for the year ahead by praying and make, making resolutions. Um, that started with the Methodists, actually started doing watch night services, um, which were services during the last hours of New Year's Eve, where they would come together as a congregation, and they would publicly set apart the last fleeting moments of the old year, and the first hours of the new year, to engage together in penitence, special prayer, stirring appeal, and fresh resolve for a more godly life in the coming year. And during, Jude, during Judaism's new year, one, was, one is to reflect upon one's wrongdoing over the year and, both, and seek forgiveness um, for their sins. All of these are different traditions that have been going on for millennia, all around New Year's. It's always meant something special to people. And today, even in the church, resolutions tend to have less to do with our lives before God, more to do with weight loss, healthier eating habits, working harder at the, in the workplace, being more organized, or spending more time with family. That's kind of how New Year's resolutions have evolved over the years. Years ago, New Year's resolutions were pretty strictly about one's relationship with God. Now, resolutions can be anything. And by all means, the scriptures do not speak at all about making New Year's resolutions, at least not that I've seen. If I'm wrong about that, please, uh, please let me know. But I've not seen a place in the scriptures that tell us to make New Year's resolutions and what our New Year's resolutions should be about. If you want to make a New Year's resolutions about weight loss, have at it. <laughs> there's liberty to do that kind of a thing. And there's no, there's no biblical model for this. Believers are free to engage in this tradition as we see fit or to not engage in them at all. New Year's resolutions for some is a time of either great success and encouragement 
How many of you would like to resolve to lose 20 pounds and then you actually lost 20 pounds? I would love that. I've done that before and I did not lose 20 pounds. <laughs> I resolved several months ago that I was going to lose 20 pounds by Christmas. Guess if that happened? <laughs> nope, that did not happen. <laughs> so they can either be a time of great success when you actually keep to your resolution or they can be a time of great defeat when we fail to keep our resolution. Even if we do not make New Year's resolutions, we all know what it's like to have all the intentions in the world to make a positive change only to fail in less than a week. Perhaps some of us used to make resolutions, but we no longer do because we can't remember a single one that we actually kept. So what's the point? <laughs> so we stop making resolutions. And whether or not you engage in these, at this time of year, or simply enter into resolve whenever you sense the need to make a change, I want to take this opportunity to bring, to recall what the Bible says about human resolve and how we can go forward in a direction we know will be in accordance with God's will, God's ways. Because we as believers, we know that this life is fleeting. We above all people should understand that this life passes away. The word of the Lord, our soul, lives forever. So I would just want to give you some encouragement today, some direction in human resolve. I'm not going to tell you the rules to keep at New Year's. That's not the point of today. But I want us to follow God's word as we consider human resolve. And I want to launch into this by talking about something that could be, that's been very convicting to myself lately over the last several weeks and perhaps can help some of you today. New Year's resolutions can be an exercise in faith or an exercise in secular humanism. You never really, have you ever heard of secular humanism in regards to New Year's resolutions? Well, today you have. <laughs> what is faith? Faith says humanity is incapable of salvation, morality, or fulfillment apart from God. That's what faith says. Any, any salvation, morality, or fulfillment that means anything on an on a, on a eternal scale to God. Secular humanism says humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without God. Let me read those again. Faith says humanity is incapable of salvation, morality, or fulfillment apart from God. Secular humanism says humanity is capable of morality and self-fulfillment without God. And when we're making a New Year's resolution, we are one of these two categories. We either walk by faith knowing that nothing that I resolve really matters unless God's in it, or we go about our res resolution just not even considering that God needs to be part of this. I can do this without God's help. I can do this without God. I don't need to pray about this. I don't need his guidance. I don't need his direction. I'm not trying to find my fulfillment in God. I can find my fulfillment in a plethora of things that are available to me on this earth. Our resolution will reflect faith or secular humanism. So we need to consider which one are we going to be reflecting when we decide to resolve. When Jonathan Edwards was young, 
he made a list of 70 resolutions that he believed would aid him in living for the glory of God. He prefaced his resolutions with a statement. And if, you, if, you've ever read New Year's, if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards, you know he's very particular about his words. So I guess it makes sense that he would have a preface to his list of New Year's resolutions. <laughs> uh, but he said, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I think that that's pretty good. If you want to write something down to preface your own New Year's resolutions to make sure you are walking by faith and not by sight according to what you were resolving for the Lord, let's write this down. I'm going to read it one more time. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Edwards reminds us that inasmuch as living with resolve is necessary for the Christian, we should be resolute people. But it is far more necessary that we build our resolve on the grace of God. That is the foundation of our Christian life in every aspect, the grace of God. There is no aspect where we get to go on our own, apart from God's grace, trying to make something of ourselves. And honestly, a lot of resolutes, a lot of resolutions, that's what they are. I'm trying to make something of myself. I'm trying to make myself better. Apart from faith in God, when that is not built upon the grace of God, that is secular humanism. That is relative atheism or agnosticism. And we as God's people cannot live according to the ways of the world. We must be different. Solomon writes in Psalm 127. Did you know Solomon wrote Psalms too? <laughs> Solomon says in Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. And in this verse, one of this passage stresses the importance for us to resolve according to the will of God and to seek his guidance. Because if God is not in it, then it does not matter what the will of man seeks to accomplish or establish or protect. If God wants the house to be built, nothing's going to keep it from being built. If the Lord wants the city to fall, nothing's going to be able to protect it. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. If what we're doing is contrary to the will of God, even if it's not even a bad thing, building a house is not a bad thing. Wanting to protect your assets is not a bad thing. But if the Lord is not in it, then you're fighting against his will, even in a good thing. If that's not what the Lord wants for you, then it is not good for you to engage in it. Verse 2 in this passage, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. That's my life verse. <laughs> It's vain to rise up early. <laughs> not, not really. That's not my life's verse. 
But what is this talking about? Verse, this verse, the second verse in, this, in Psalm 127 essentially reminds us of the spirit of Sabbath. God does not want the will, ability, and the resolve of a person to be their driving force. It is not God's intent for mankind to rely so much on himself that he is overthrown with stress and worry, that if he does not accomplish what he sets out to accomplish, then all is lost. God wants you and I to know the rest that is found in faith, that God is capable of bringing about salvation, sanctification, and all that our life needs. He will see to it that his will is accomplished I preached several weeks ago about the subject of anxiety and how the root of anxiety is essentially found in the hard earth of secular humanism. That is that everything hinges on my ability to perform. Rest and true joy and fruitfulness is found in trusting in God's all-powerful, supremely tactical, loving kindness. And that's what Solomon is trying to show us here. It doesn't matter what we will to accomplish. If God's not in it, maybe you still accomplish it, but it's worthless. It's worth nothing because God wasn't in it. God's not in it. What if Israel were to build this temple that they were building for God and God were to say, I'm not going to be connected with that temple. They could go to that temple and all, offer all the sacrifices that they wanted. In fact, they did that. Not in the temple, but they built altars all around the country. God was not in those altars. And in fact, those altars, every time that they went to these altars and booths and idols around the, around the country, that was an abomination to God because God was not in those things. Even though they wanted a, a way of worshiping God, God was not in those things because God said that he was not going to be in those things. He told them the way that they were to walk and worship. It didn't matter what their good intentions were. God said, I am not in those things. I am in the, I'm going to associate my name with the temple, and to this temple you will worship. So they could build whatever they wanted around the country, but God was not in any of that. So it was worthless and vain. In fact, it was, it was a breach of faith for them to go and worship at those things, even though they were worshiping God, perhaps. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I read these just a few moments ago. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. What resolve? What great businessmen. They know what, they know what they're doing. They know how to run their business. They've got a plan. But then he goes on to say in verse 14, Whereas... You do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. He's even saying, in your everyday business, I mean, we go to work day in and day out. We have plans. We get organized. We know what we want to accomplish. We know the money we want to make. And we go out and we go there with our efforts and with our abilities and we accomplish stuff. And James is saying, What is life? Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live 
and do this or that. We don't just get up and go to work accomplishing what man accomplishes. Even getting up and going to work is done according to the will of God. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But then look down in verse 16 and 17. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What is he saying here? Just getting up and going to work, thinking that your life is being built by your efforts, is arrogance. You're full of yourself when you're trying to fill yourself. I mean, that's really kind of what that term comes from. You're full of yourself. Have you ever, has anybody ever told you that? You're so full of yourself. I tell myself that a lot. No, but I don't think anybody's ever told me that. You guys are so nice. I mean to myself, though. I tell myself that quite often. But you're trying to fill yourself by using your own efforts. You're not built upon the grace of God. He's telling us just going to work without acknowledging that God is acknowledging God and following him in it is arrogance and we're boasting is and we're, our boasting is evil. Do you feel evil just putting on your shirt and tie to go to work? <laughs> but if we're doing it apart from the grace of God, apart from acknowledging the will of God in all of our life, even in work, we're walking in arrogance. And then he ends it up, says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. He's also regarding the failure to act according to God's will to be sin. You know to do good. You know God's will. Maybe you have been praying for God's will. God, show me what you want me to do. And then God brings the opportunities into your life. And then you don't do it. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what's pleasing and good to God. Because you've been trying to seek his will. But then you don't do it. And well, to him it is sin also. So on, on one end, we see that we can resolve to do all the good in the world. But if we do not so, do so, having first submitted ourselves to the will of God, then we are deemed arrogant. And in everything we do, we're boasting in our own ability. On the other end, if we are completely aware of good that we should do according to the will of God, and we don't do it, we are deemed sinners. So one, we must be people of resolve. We must be people of resolve. According to the will of God. Yeah, and two, in our resolve, we must always submit that resolve that we have to the will of God. It is fine to have a plan. It is good to be organized. It is good to want to accomplish something. But all of that must always be submitted deliberately to the will of God. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Talking about all the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. We see here that the driving force of Paul, who admittedly, had, was more driven than any of the other apostles was the preeminent, all-consuming grace of God. That was his driving force. The grace of God drove Paul to act. And while he was acting, 
God's grace was the power that was making Paul's work fruitful. Paul himself stated elsewhere, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because he knew perhaps more than anyone that without God's grace, it doesn't matter what houses we want to build, what cities we want to defend, nothing matters and no endeavor will be fruitful according to God's measure of fruitfulness. When it's not built upon grace, by God's will. Perhaps we will go out, we'll tear down our storehouses, build new ones, rejoice in the works of our hands that have provided so much bounty. But in that same moment, the Lord will declare, you fool, this day your soul is required of you. You remember that passage? Why was God so hard, harsh to that well-to-do farmer in Luke chapter 12? In that, in that passage in Luke chapter 12, all he did was farm. He did really well for himself. He tried to build storehouses to fit all of the things that he was blessed to have through all of his endeavors. That's not a sin. It's not wrong. That's good business. Why was God so harsh on him? Because the farmer's resolve was the resolve of the secular humanist who did not regard God in the building of his house. And God says, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of you. All because he was doing good business, but not considering God in any of it. He was only considering his life, his self, what he has done with the works of his own hands. He was not considering what the hand of God has done or the will of God. So we must gladly, we can gladly take up the mantle of faith and go forward in our resolve according to the grace and the will of our God. Rather than according to the faithless farmer whose success in farming ended up being his damnation. So up till now, we can determine the following concerning our New Year's resolutions. One, we must be people of resolve who charge forward with progressive intent. We should strive forward to better things. Two, we must consider the will of God in all of these intentions. We must be seeking the will of God, putting his will first. Three, we must remember that God's grace is what accomplishes anything of value even for the most talented people or their most charitable purposes, even the most Christ-like endeavors performed by man will fall shy apart from the power of God. For even Christ himself was empowered by the Spirit and submitted to the Father in all of his works. How much more should we rely upon the power of the Spirit in our works and follow the will of our Father? Jesus himself did that. And I would add for the sake of instruction that because of the vital role that faith plays in our resolutions, we must be fervent in prayer. The scriptures say, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus told us to pray for the will of God, regardless of the fact that it is God's will to perform it. For consider Matthew chapter 9, where it is said that, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. See there, God knows the need. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But what does Jesus say about this subject? Therefore, pray 
the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. God's already planning on sending laborers into his, farm, into his harvest. He already knows the need. When we pray to him, we're not informing him of the great need. We're not, we're not reminding God that there's this person over here that we really love that needs Jesus, that we'd really like him to send his spirit and, and open their eyes to the gospel. We're not reminding God that this person's over here. God already knows. But God is saying, pray the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into his harvest. So even when we know the will of God, we still must pray for it. Perhaps those things in particular we must be praying for. If you look at, we're not going to talk about the Lord's Prayer in depth today, but if you look at the Lord's Prayer, all of those things are the will of God. And that's, God, that's Christ's model prayer for us to pray according to. Pray for the things that God's already promised for you. Those are the things we should be primarily praying for. Not because we're reminding God of his promise, but because we're reminding ourselves of the promise. We're reminding ourselves that we have to rely on him for all of these things. Prayer is not beneficial to God, but prayer is beneficial to us. God is the one who wants to bring in his will. He plans to perform it, but Jesus still says, pray to the Father. We are to pray not only for the things we want, but also for the things that God wants. We must always pray for anything we resolve to do for his glory. I want to move on for the last few minutes here to also give some guidance from God's word according to the content of our resolutions. And we'll just look at one passage here, unless the Lord determines otherwise. Um, and while you're praying to God to accomplish his goodwill in you, according to his loving kindness and desire to see goodwill upon the earth and in your life, be strengthened according to the ambitious generosity and empowering of God to perform his will. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. I brought this passage up on Wednesday, but I thought it was perfectly fitting for today. For 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6, Paul says, But this I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the need of the saints but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry will they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's just, perhaps you saw some of those adjectives in this passage talking about God's goodness to us. I'm just going to run through some of these. Look at some of these adjectives that are found in this passage concerning God and what he has for us. Bountiful. Abundance of all grace. We have all sufficiency in all things. 
We have an abundance for every good work. He supplies and multiplies. He increases the fruits of our righteousness. He enriches us in everything according to sincerity, abounding in thanksgiving to God, sincere sharing, exceeding grace, indescribable gift. And all of this is applied to those who seek to do good according to the will of God in faith. Those who seek to do good according to the will of God in faith in the generous grace of God as anyone would purpose in their heart. I want to recall the definition of grace as I defined it last week. Grace is God's loving kindness giving us what we could neither deserve nor accomplish according to our own strength or will. I'm going to read that one more time. Grace is God's loving kindness giving us what we could neither deserve nor accomplish according to our own strength or will. Up in that passage that we just saw, I'm not going to sit on this passage for very long, but we see very clearly Paul is resting and trying to get the Corinthians to rest on the complete sufficiency of, the, of our generous God. He wants the people in us to rest on the complete sufficiency of our generous, loving God. That's called faith. That's what faith is. Seeing God as the sufficient, generous, loving God who is ready to abound for you. Whether it's salvation, whether it's your sanctification, whether it's some ambition that you have that you, would, you want to do according to his will, we put our faith in God because he is the one who bountifully gives us all we need to do good here on this earth. And I want to, I want to mention a quote. I referenced this on Wednesday, but I didn't have it exactly. So uh, I have it exactly now. It was a quote by A.C. Dixon. He said, when we rely upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon education, we get what education can do. When we rely upon eloquence, we get what eloquence can do, and so on. But when we rely upon prayer, we get what God can do. What do you want in your life? Do you want just what you can do? Or do you want what God can do? Because I tell you what, If you want to rely upon your education, your smarts, your experience, your skills, you're going to get what those things can accomplish. But if you are willing to rely upon God through prayer, this God that Paul just described in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this abundant, bountiful, all-sufficient God who is ready to give everything imaginable to those who seek to do his will. If we're willing to rely upon that kind of a God, then there's nothing that you cannot do for him. There is nothing in his will that he is not going to equip and empower you to do. For example, if you want to resolve to be more generous 
this new year. And you, think, and you see in Scripture, God wants me to be more generous, according to Scripture. You may not have anything, but God is going to give you the abundance with which you can be more generous. That's the kind of God he is. But are we willing to put our faith in him, or are we putting our faith in our bank account? If we're putting our faith in him, then we can go out and do his will. Even if we don't have the supplies, didn't God, didn't Jesus teach us that when he fed the 5,000 with this handful of food? That God is capable of performing his will even when there are no means to do it. Because that's the kind of God he is. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. I mean, God, we are God's field. Who works the field? The farmer. The field doesn't grow, doesn't produce anything of its own ambition. The farmer causes it to be bountiful. The building doesn't build itself. A builder has to build the building if it's going to stand. And the skills of that architect are going to determine the stability of that building. Paul further states, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. Why are we putting our faith in what man can accomplish when God has already told us everything is yours? Put your faith in me. I will give you what is necessary to accomplish all my will. Perhaps it's just not his will that you're interested in. Do we not see this? We are built by the grace of God doing what we cannot do. We are saturated with the grace of God becoming what we can never become. We have access to all that God's grace can do. So why do we settle for resolve whose outcome will not and cannot and perhaps sometimes should not last? Resolve great things for the sake of God's will and step out according to the power of his grace that he will bestow upon you according to the counsel of his own will, entering into his presence through prayer so that we might know the will and the ways of God and find solace in his daily direction. Not like King Saul of whom the scriptures write, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. This is not a threat to you that I'm dishing out, but we see where God wants our faith to be. 
we see where he wants us to seek guidance, to find our power, to find our sufficiency. King Saul sought sufficiency and guidance from earthly things rather than God. So God stripped the kingdom away from him. How can we call ourselves disciples of Christ when we don't even go after Christ? When we don't even seek him for his guidance, for his direction? How can we say we're going where Christ is going if we're not going where Christ is going? It's pretty logical if you ask me. But in our resolve, let our resolve reflect what a Christian should be resolving. Let it reflect the concern and the care that a Christian should have in this world for the glory of God. Let us resolve with the hymn writer Palmer Hartso. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He wrote, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He hath the words of life. I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth. He is the living way. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me, still will I enter in. I am resolved, and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay, taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, will walk the heavenly way. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. Let us start the new year resolving to follow Christ into the will of God, built upon this foundation of grace, this benevolent, generous grace that God promises to all those who will dare to step out and trust in what God can do rather than what we ourselves can do or what another person can do for us. Let us trust in what God will and wants to do in you in this earth. I thank you, Lord, for giving us such rebuke in your scripture and for such direction and such encouragement Rebuke of the dangers of living according to the ways of the world, the ways of humanity, and encouragement and delight in revealing to us what you have available to us for those of us who will set aside the kingdom of the world and chase after you according to your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray that you would humble each one of us here today so that we will not pursue vanity, that we will not pursue self-righteousness or achievement, but that we will say to ourselves and to others, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Lord, I just pray that there will be such a passion in this church for the will of God, not simply to maintain what has been but to resolve to seek you into the future. For unless you're in it, nothing matters. 
I pray that we would simply and only desire to go where you are. In Jesus' name, amen.